0: Uh, This morning. Uh, Are you finding them helpful? This side, are you feeling them helpful? (laughs) See, Phil's got all three of them stacked up. He could preach them all again for us to remind us. (laughs) I felt I was going to get whisked off then. Phil was going to. So, these letters, there's something about these letters. Now, when we read them, it, they seem uh, to, in a distant place, to, to places that really have very few churches now, you kind of think, well, 2,000 years later, what's become of them? It's full of language that, and symbolism that we find slightly strange and, and curious. It's, uh, it's language that we don't often use and symbolism that we don't often use. And these letters to the churches, we think, well, that's them. What about us? There's something about the seven letters to the seven churches in Revelation that have been captured and maintained in scripture for our benefit, that there's something that God is speaking to us as a local congregation in this time and this place, that is, we will hear from through the the seven separate letters, there's something about the number seven that is perfection, that is completeness, and we want to hear what God is saying to us through the example to these seven churches, do you hear that? So, it's not that we kind of forensically take something from each one and say, well, we're more like the church in Ephesus, or we're more like the church in Pergamum, or we more actually we want to hear what God is saying to us completely as a church through the example of these seven congregations. Do you get that? And it's important for us because we are Christ's church. It's not to say, by saying that, I'm not saying other people aren't, but we are the representation here in this place at this time. With lots of other believers meeting in other places. But we are God's church. We belong to him. We are his people. What we do reflects upon him. You know that, don't you? Who we are testifies to him. As I think it's Bill Hybel says, that the local church is is God's answer to the world's questions. There is no other solution. Remarkable as it seems. That we are God's strategy daunting, hey? In this day and age in Leicester where I I used to work in the eastern side of the city that uh, had uh, housing and communities from parts of Asia and Africa particularly, churches were closing because congregations were dwindling and they either got turned into flats, into pubs or into places of worship of other gods. In our British scene at the moment, we may be negative or feeling hard-pressed. We may be feeling challenged. Where are the lost that we keep praying for? What is our influence and significance? The question posed, uh, I heard again this week, if we shut up shop and left, would anyone notice? What difference to our town and communities would it make if this church ceased? We're not going to close. But Christ has called us, put his spirit in us, not just individually, but as a people, to reach out and rescue the world. Not just in this gathered time, but as we're praying in your workplace, in your home life, in your leisure time. This is why we've been called. Let's pray. Father. Father. Father, you are God. Your son has been exalted and raised and is at the right hand of of you yourself with all authority in heaven and earth and you have purposed and chosen us, you have called us by name to be your children, hallelujah for that, that we know you, you've put your spirit within us. And if there's someone here who doesn't know that, may God, you grant them the ability to choose you and choose life this very time. And in this time of diagnostic, of this time of listening to your advice and your words to the church in Thyatira, we seek to listen, not to say, huh, we, we sit in judgment over them, but to sit... Alongside them and say, "Speak, Lord, to us. here now, please. To myself and Phil and Duncan, to the leadership team, but to the whole church too. We count it as an awesome, enormous privilege that we're yours, and we want to honour you in all ways." Amen. Turn with me to um, the Bible, to Revelation. Uh, It should come on the screen, I'm hoping. It's uh, chapter 2, verse 18, to the end of the chapter. To the angel of the church in Thyatira write, These are the words of the Son of God, whose eyes are like blazing fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. but she is unwilling. So I will cast her on a bed of suffering and I will make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely unless they repent of her ways. I will strike her children dead. Then all the churches will know that I am he who searches hearts and minds and I will repay each of you according to your deeds. Now I say to the rest of you at Thyatira, to you who do not hold to her teaching and have not learned Satan's so-called deep secrets. I will not oppose any other burden on you. Only hold on to what you have until I come. To him who overcomes and does my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He will dash them to pieces like pottery, just as I have received authority from my Father. I will also give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. I live in a house in Camden that is wonderfully provided for me by one of our members. It's a real privilege. He's not here, so I can't embarrass him. In fact, I can't see, I'm presuming he's not here. But he was renovating it. It was in uh, quite a lot of disrepair. Um, it needed re-roofing because the water had come in and uh, the, the, the loft where my office is now had kind of all been uh, really destroyed. And, and he had kind of had to re-floorboard it or bring the floorboards up and just to kind of make it fit for living again. And uh, he, he, when I first moved in, he said it was great that as he was renovating this old kind of beamed loft space and making it a, a, a usable room, he discovered various things that were like ink stains on the wall, and there were like carpenter's marks where they measured the beams. This kind of—it's not nailed; it's all kind of wood and, and joist. And I'm not a carpenter, so I'm running out of language. But it's kind of like—it's like, like old-fashioned stuff. But he lifted the floorboards, and he found beneath the floorboards from about 100 years ago a piece of paper. Uh, I don't know if he's still got it, but he found he was like, I wonder what this is. And I uh, wonder, you know, some, some treasure map or something. It wasn't. It was a re- school report cart from someone who'd lived in my house 100, 150 years ago. And he was very entertained to read it because as he pulled it out and read it, he realized it was not a good report cart. <laughs> and the child had obviously come home, opened it sneakily, realized this is not very good news, gone up to the loft and slipped it down the crack in the floorboard because... <laughs> Parents who would never see it. (laughs) Parents are long since dead. I don't know what happened to the child. I don't know what happened to the circumstance. I don't even know if it was from Camden Grammar School. But they wanted to hide their report. These letters to the churches are like Jesus seeing the churches and reporting to them. Saying, I see you. I know you. I understand everything about you as individuals, but also as a congregation together. Sometimes we read these letters and we kind of think, well, we, we personalize them so quickly and say it's about me and what I understand about myself and my relationship with God. Has your love grown cold? Have you become lukewarm? All those kind of things. And that's good to do. But to remember, it's also written to us. The report card comes to the church at Thyatira and says, I see you. I see you, I know your deeds, I know everything about you, personally and as a church together. And in many ways, the report card for Thyatira is good. We see it in, um, in, verses, in verse 19. I know your deeds, says Jesus, your love and faith, your service and perseverance, and that you are doing now doing more than you did at first. A plus, A star in modern parlance. You're doing well. A little church, one of the less significant churches of the seven that were written to. Uh, It was a small town, but it was based in trade. It had a lot of guilds and craftspeople. A lot of people who were industrial-based, who were making things, who were selling things, who were involved in commercial life. He wrote to them and said, I see what you're doing, and I'm so pleased with so much of it. But then comes... The next verse, and he says, Nevertheless, there's something I need to point out. But let's take a, a step backwards. Um, have you noticed what he says to the start? He says, These are the words of the Son of God. Do you know, in the entire book of Revelation, in the entirety of this letter, this revelatory letter, this is the only time Jesus is referred to as the Son of God. It's a bit weird, isn't it? We know him to be the Son of God. We know him to be the Alpha and Omega, the first and the last, the, uh, the risen one, the one who is uh, before the, uh, the Father at the right hand of the Father with all authority in heaven and earth. But in this letter to the church, he says, I am the Son of God. Now, we know him to be the Son of God. That was one of the things the early church discovered and made their own, that he is the only begotten son of the Father. That he is uncreated, that he is in co-relationship with the Father through eternity, the eternal son with the Holy Spirit in the Father. But here to this church he says, I am the son of God. In his opening statement, in his opening words to them. And it got me thinking, why? I mean, in in the church of Smyrna, he says to him, uh, these are the words of him who is the first and the last in uh, the church to Ephesus. These are the one who holds the seven stars in his uh, right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. To the church in Philadelphia in chapter three, who is holy and true, who holds the key of David's and so forth. Well, it may be that in the course of seven letters, he's just writing and saying his different attributes. He's saying, this is who I am. Church, know this. In all, these, uh, in, in all these introductions, in all these letters to you, know who I am. Be sure of who I am. Be confident of who I am, and know this, church. And that's good advice. Know him. Know Him as Phil was, was preaching a few weeks ago. Are we passionate about the Savior, the Lord? But maybe too, maybe to, to this church in Thyatira, there's there's a word to them about loving the Son of God, of knowing the Son of God, of being challenged in their loyalty to the true Son of God. That in this place of Thyatira, in their activities as commercial producers of of metalwork and pottery and and cloth. You remember Lydia was was from Thyatira, a dealer in purple cloth. There were lots of industry, of artisans, of craft. That as part of their trades, they would pay, uh, pay allegiance and honor other gods, other deities, other idols, other ways of allegiance. And maybe Jesus understands the context of their church and he's just pointing out to them, remember, I'm the son. I'm the focus of your allegiance, none other. I'm the son of God. That reference to the Ten Commandments, have no other gods before me, for they are all made of wood and clay and iron. They are nothing. He is the Son of God. Allegiance to me. In the Roman world, it was of, often they had to, to pay homage and play allegiance and say uh, that, that Caesar, the emperor, the rulers were Lord. They would have to acknowledge that. And for the Christians, counterculturally, we don't do that. It was costly for these people to say, We will, we will remove ourselves from this idol worship, from these practices that you practice, not condemning them by sort of lambasting them and saying they're rubbish, but saying, now we honor and follow Jesus, the Son of God. The Son of God, the words of the Son of God. I was just kind of just reflecting on this thing in the so what question. Here are some so what's. When Jesus looks at us, And when people perceive us, is is in the report card that could be written about us, would people say, first and foremost, they know us to be followers of the Son of God, marked out by Jesus, allegiance fully to Him? Do people, in their first description of, of me, say, He's a Christian? He's a lover of Jesus. I, I don't want it to be he's, he's a minister and leader of a church. So I'm, I'm proud of the calling God has given me. I want first to be known as his follower. I thought about it in my own time and thinking about things that we ally ourselves with, have allegiance with. Do people first describe you as a supporter of a football team? Oh, that's the Arsenal fan. Yo, Arsenal. I knew that would get a laugh. I'm not into sort of saying, you know, wear lots of symbols and badges, you know, the fish or the cross or the bumper sticker. But it's interesting, isn't it? We're quite willing to wear an allegiance in terms of a football shirt in our social grouping at school or the workplace Sunday. But really, is it clear that we're known as Jesus followers? Or how about the political party that you support? Dodgy ground, I know, for some. I know for some here there's a real commitment to political parties. But are you first known as a lover of Jesus? What about the music or the band that you support? Or the diet you're trying to keep? Or the gym membership that you have? Or the business position or promotion that you have? Or is it more obvious by the labels you wear on your clothing? What it says, then, first and foremost, you're a follower of Jesus. The Son of God, whose eyes are like blazing fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your deeds your love and your service, your faith and perseverance, and that you are now doing more than you did at first. It's great to know that this church is is doing well. It's great that they are working hard, that they have, they've got things in place, they are trusting God. It's, I mean, if we were to, to say, what would what were the things that would, we would, could celebrate and say, we're not maybe perfect at, but we are doing well at as a church? I wonder what you would, I know what I'd describe, but... That I'm kind of maybe biased, but I wonder how you would describe it. Um, maybe this is always a dangerous thing. Drop Phil and I an email, not a ranting, complaining one, perhaps. <laughs> but maybe, or in your home group this week as you gather together to, to reflect on this message and this passage. What is a church? Do we, do we Are we doing well? You can keep growing, and Jesus affirms that. He says, you're doing more than you did at first, which is excellent. We want to keep doing that which we have put, God has put on our heart to, to keep on growing in that which we know to be doing well in. How are we as a church in a diagnostic? How are you as an individual in your diagnostic? Would someone again describe us or you uh, in being uh, in your deeds, your love, your faith, your service and perseverance and that you're now doing more than you did at first? How are you doing? Stock take. Sunday's a day of rest. It's just hard work, isn't it? Uh, Sunday's kind of for just chilling back and kind of having a nice day, a big meal, and falling asleep in the sunshine later. But actually, today is the day we set apart to say, Jesus, speak to us as the gathered people. Stir our hearts and touch our corporate life, please, God. Make us more than we were yesterday. How are we doing? Nevertheless, he goes on, I have this against you. It seems a little bit harsh, doesn't it? Um, why, why does he kind of have to point out this to them? If, if in fact they're kind of doing mostly good, you know, that they've got in, a, in all of the churches, it seems to be the most positive report that they get from Jesus in the letters that are written. And it's a bit like this. Imagine there's a really healthy middle-aged woman. She has dieted well, she's watched what she's eaten, she's exercised carefully, she's got a low body fat index, that she's got good cholesterol level, and everything is really, really healthy. She's not been to the doctor for 15 years because she's not needed to. Now there's, there's something not quite right, so she walks in and says to the doctor, I don't feel quite, uh, quite well, but can't you give me credit? All these 15 years, I've never had a problem. Why now? And the doctor says, because if I don't deal with this one little lump, it'll kill you. The church in Thyatira is doing well. They're getting a great response card. But as Jesus perceives them, as Jesus sees them, there's something that will kill them. If he doesn't speak to them. It's not that he's kind of saying, well, you've got all A's and one B and we focus on the B. He's saying, great, keep doing what you're doing well. But look here, there's something not right at the heart of this church. And I need to address it because I don't want you to die. I don't want you to become sick and and cancerous and lose what you have. I want you to keep being who you're called to be and keep excelling in the things you're doing. But unless this is addressed, it will work its way in. One of the things that's been with me for three weeks, I didn't know I was preaching on this passage, but there was something that God said to me um, in in weeks by, and it's just been cropping up. and, And it's kind of a hard word in some senses. And it relates to this. It says, Jesus says, Whose eyes are like blazing fire. In Hebrews uh, 4 verse 13, nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. And the phrase was this, there is no secret sin in God's eyes. There is no secret sin. We define it as secret. We define it as hidden. We know that we can get up to stuff, whether it's on our own or away from people who will hold us to account, that we think no one will ever know. Jesus sees. Jesus sees you. There is no secret sin. And I don't tell you this to condemn you and make you squirm in your seat and think, now the next 10 minutes are going to be awful and I can't wait to leave here. I say this because I believe God, like he to the church in Thyatira, is saying, brother, sister, hear me. There is no secret sin. What you are doing is damaging you. It's cankerous. It will destroy you. Anything good in your life is being undermined because of this, this thing that has got a grip of you that no one else knows about, and it's destroying you, and it, Pains Jesus, it hurts Jesus. And he doesn't want it for you or for me or for us because if you are suffering and sick and dying inside and no one knows, it will be hurting us. There is no secret sin. Nothing is hidden from his eyes. He says... The problem with Thyatira is they've, they've become tolerant. They're tolerating this so-called prophetess, Jezebel. Tolerance is one of the words of, uh, uh, that's popular in our culture. Have you noticed? Tolerance is less you say, well, I want to do something that you don't like, and then, wow, gosh, they, they lambast us for being intolerant. But tolerance it has a, a, a number of meanings, let me explain it in two ways. When, occasionally, I go on a long trek. I went walking uh, in the Himalayas. Never done a long trek. and I thought, well, I'll either hate it or love it. Um, <laughs> it's going to be a wretched holiday or a good one. It was a great holiday. But as I was walking along in, on this rocky, stony path, I got a stone in my boot. And because I got a backpack on, and because we were going up a hill, and because... Uh, we had a long way to walk, I tolerated the stone in my boot because I didn't want to take my boot off because I got really sore feet by that point. And I thought, if I sit down after walking for three days and being absolutely shattered, I'm really going to have to struggle to get back up. Uh, So I tolerated the stone in my boot. Two things could have happened. One, I'd got an awfully big blister that would actually stop me from walking. It would stop me dead. I could go no further. Or I could so kind of adjust my walk that i kind of walk really, really curiously and end up, if I managed to find w- a it into the arch of my foot, to kind of get a really weird callous eventually and to become malformed. <laughs> on my foot. Why is that funny? But when we tolerate ungodliness... It either gives us a spiritual blister that eventually will stop us dead in our tracks. Or it will malform us. We will tolerate it. We will put up with it. It will become part of us such that we are malformed. And God loves us too much to let that be. The other way of tolerance is, is in the medical. I, I used to do some well, I used to be a marine biologist in my half my life ago now. Um, and one of, we did a course in marine toxicology. Really interesting about things in the marine environment that can kill you dead very, very quickly. Uh, it was really. I nearly did a PhD in it. I was so fascinated. You know, heart surgeons now uh, use um, uh, venom from a, a snake uh, that actually paralyzes the heart muscles. Did you know that? You didn't, did you? It's great. <laughs> Medical uses... But one of the things they do uh, when decide, deciding how, um, how poisonous something is, is they, they take cells or they take some little mouse or rabbit or something like that and they inject it with toxin and they see how quickly it will die and how, you know, to 50% is the tolerance. In drug trials, they see how tolerant someone is to a drug or how tolerant we become, till we're poisoned. Now, as I thought about this in these terms, that's all very well. We need to know that if we take paracetamol or something, that we will be tolerant to it. We won't be affected. Now, in medical terms, that's really important. But in spiritual terms, just think of it this way. Well, we can kind of get involved with stuff, and we know that it will hurt us, but it won't kill us. Therefore, we think that's an acceptable risk. We will tolerate it. And maybe we think, well, that's not hurt us too much, therefore I will up the dosage. Because we've got used to it, we've become conditioned to it. We think it's not hurt us that much, no one knows. Let's do it again. Like an addiction, more and more. See, the thing about sin is that it seems to satisfy, it seems to be okay, it seems to make sense but it's actually poisoning us spiritually. You know, I know it when I'm, I'm willfully kind of in my heart or mind, pursuing something or thinking about something, uh, and I kind of just put it on, you know, I tolerate it. It, it affects my spirit. I, not, init- not initially, well, it does initially, but I don't kind of perceive it initially, and I, I kind of think, well, I can get on, I can get on, but I know it affects my worship and the condition of my heart. I know it affects my aliveness and alertness to God. I know it begins to affect my willingness to sing His praise. I know it begins to affect my love for one another. I know it begins to poison me. And until I recognize that and repent, it is damaging me. And it's damaging you. Not because just because I'm one of the people to preach and lead, and sometimes you look for for advice and counsel. That's true. But because if I'm not living out my calling as a brother in Christ, wholly committed to holiness, it affects you in ways I don't understand, but it affects you. And how you live and how you behave in public and private, whether it's hidden or not, affects our witness together. You know, there's two things about tolerance that I just want to remind you of. As Christians, we're to be infinitely tolerant of our brothers and sisters outside. Do you know that? Uh, of, our lost, of our lost brothers and sisters who aren't believers. I'm not here saying for as a church, we should respond to the ungodliness in the world and become hyper-holy and critical and harsh and intolerant. We love and we reach out a hand of Christ, not judging or condemning, but saying, come to a savior who can rescue and transform you. This gospel is good news. But what I am speaking of is an intolerance in ourselves to ungodliness. Not that we're harsh with one another and judge one another and, and castigate one another because we're becoming, we want to fracture ourselves and become, you know, like super holy. And but to say, this is this is this is too important for you and for me to let it go unspoken. For the church in Thyatira with Jezebel. They were saying, you know, you, she's kind of leading them into sexual immorality, we're told here in verse 21, and food that is sacri- eating food sacrificed to idols. They were tolerating that, probably because culturally that was so much part of their, the, the, the city that they lived in. In order to get on, in order to be part of, in order maybe even to be credible, as witnesses for Christ, they thought, well, well let's meet the culture. We have to be different. The biblical phrase is holiness. It calls us to grow in holiness. It doesn't happen like that, but it started. When he regenerated you, when he, he gave you new birth, he made you holy in his sight, and he, he saved you. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. But you're not perfected yet. The biblical pictures are again and again of this that we start off as infants and we're to be given milk, but then we're to become like to grow up, to become children and teenagers and to become maturing. It never finishes, but to keep growing in saintliness and knowledge of God and and how it's being worked out. Or in the the picture it uses of the vine to say we're like we're grafted in, but we grow and we will begin to bear more and more fruits. In other words, we. We develop. Well, the other picture is like that of of metal being refined in the fire. We've, We've been purified, but there's a greater purity that comes as God works in us. Holiness to grow. How are we doing as a church in our day, in our age, in holiness? Because it's really, really important. It really is important. Because it's about Jesus and the honor of Jesus. It's about his people being reclaimed and restored and for the world to see living testaments of what it means to say we're different. Jesus is Lord. It's not just lip service. It's not just pretend. It's about the character and integrity and nature of you and me and us. Not to be harsh and and critical with people But to be loving in the extraordinary ways we can be, but to be characterized by a light and a salt and a saintliness and a character and a way of living, the people say, that's wonderful. Fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, gentleness, kindness, goodness, self-control. One of the other things I felt the Lord say to me uh, this week as I was preparing, why is this important? Because it's the honor of Jesus at stake in the name and the reputation of him, the Son of God. I think too often people say the church is hypocritical. Yes, we are. I'll admit that. Because we're flawed and we're, we're being worked on. But too often people look at it and say, well, I'm having nothing to do with them. And they go off elsewhere. And it's not because we don't believe and it's not because we haven't got lively worship, but it's when they look at us. How's the gossip? How's the integrity in living? Sexual immorality is rife in our day and age. Particularly the stuff we can do in secret. May the Lord speak to you as he would about your circumstance and our church. And the other thing I, I heard I think he said to me is is raise the bar for us. I'm not saying any of this to to slam you and make you feel guilt ridden, though sometimes we like that as you know, we've had a good sermon where we felt guilty. You know, he's preached sin and judgment and whoa we've not at all. But I do feel that the Lord says, raise the bar for us. In love as the church in Thyatira was affirmed for in your deeds, in your faith, in your service and perseverance, that we're doing more than we did at first. More, please. Raise the bar. Not to become busier and more frantic, but to become more effective, fruitful. But also in this area of holiness. In this day and age where we say, "What's my business isn't your business. In this day and age where we say as a church, well, I'll come together and worship, but what I do in my own life, well, that's my business, not yours as a church. Well, I have to disagree. As members together in the congregation, we've committed in covenant to one another to say we will champion each other in faith. We will seek to inspire each other to grow in godliness and holiness and righteousness for the glory and honor of Christ. Would you not say? Raise the bar. If you're doing well, great, but raise the bar. You're not perfect. But if you're struggling, you're trapped and addicted because you've got into a habit or behavior, today is a day of of breakthrough. Because first comes recognizing it. First comes saying, I'm messed up here. I'm struggling, I've got trapped, I can't do it. We will not turn you over. We will not tell you off. We will not be angry at you. We will not reject you. But what we promise to do is hear you, come together in Christ and pray for repentance and the forgiveness of God and promise to journey with you because you're too precious to him and too precious to us to leave you slowly poisoning to death. If it's a family matter, we don't want to see marriages break up. If it's a family matter with children, we don't want to see families riven apart and destroyed. We don't want someone to become so ashamed that they stop coming because they can't look at us in the eye and think, I'm not welcome there because I'm too bad. You're not too bad for Jesus. He sees you, he loves you, he welcomes you. He calls out to you to repent and turn, even today, do you know that? Today, please, brothers and sisters. Finally, as I go on a little bit, just a word of encouragement. He says, to those To him who overcomes and does my will to the end, I give authority over the nations, just as I've received authority from my Father. I also give him the morning star. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what he says to the churches. Jesus gives himself to us in order that we should be the church we're called to be. Hooray! Hooray! Hooray. came across a story of a, a, a lady, a doctor, who was having to go into someone, a, a man who was having mental health issues, uh, and he'd kind of lost his grip on reality and just lived in the downstairs of his home. And he would never go out, and he would never kind of... Um, tidy up and he would just get stuff brought to him, meals on wheels, but he would leave the remnants in his front room. He wouldn't go upstairs because it had got cluttered and filthy. And he lived downstairs in absolute squalor in the, in, in, the, in the mire of his life. And the doctor would have to kind of brace herself to go and visit him because he would not leave. And she would have to hold her breath because the stench in the place was awful. And she would say, why don't you you know, get help? I don't want it. I like the way I live. I don't want to change. One day sadly the man died because he'd poisoned himself so much and it was his son's job to go in and to tidy up and he couldn't bear to do the tidying downstairs because it was just so wretched so he started upstairs and in the bedroom as he was tidying up he found bag upon bag of notes upon notes of over a hundred thousand pounds this man had collected but never used And as the doctor and the man said, it was like he had the riches upstairs, but he didn't use them to change his life downstairs. That as Christians, don't live in the downstairs, in the perpetual kind of cycle of trying to do it ourselves and getting more and more frustrated and caught up. That God himself, as he's enthroned in heaven, sees us. And with all authority, with every riches of all the blessings in Christ in the heavenly realms available for us now in the Holy Spirit, through the cross, say, live, brothers and sisters, as my children, co-heirs, not just awaiting inheritance, but now co-heirs in Christ. I've seen it, and I want to see it more, people being set free from demonic bondage. We've seen it in this church, but we pray for more people beset by addictions and habits and fears and behaviors. We want to see people released and delivered from the chains that bind them. And we want to see this church living in the riches of Christ as co-heirs, of seeing each other glowing metaphorically in the grace and the power of God as wonderful examples of faith lived out. But no one is too desperate or too bad or too low not to receive the hand of grace as we journey together. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Jesus. Someone, when they encountered Jesus, said, away from me, I'm a sinful man. When Isaiah had a vision of God in the temple, he fell face down and says, woe to me, I'm undone. Even John, the beloved, the disciple exiled on Patmos, who had leant on the breast of Jesus at the last supper who'd been there at the cross who was defined in all time in all in the scriptures as the one who Jesus loved when he saw the brilliance of Jesus enthroned in heaven he says i fell at his feet as though dead and in all those instances this is the response of god to us in his holiness and his grace then he placed his right hand on me and says do not be afraid That whoever you are, wherever you are, wherever we are as a church, in a messed up nature, we need not be frightened of Jesus. Sometimes in the strong word that he gives, because always, God leads us to repentance. Even if it's for the 99th time. He says, come back to me. Turn from your wicked ways. To the way of life. Be restored. Sally, could you lead us in worship as we celebrate all that God is, has done and as He's called us? I will bless the Lord forever. We are thankful for each other in the church, aren't we? For one another? We're growing as a church and not everyone knows each other, but I'm thankful for you all. And you may not know everyone, but we're called together. But I want us to respond, to I'm going to talk with Phil, and we're just going to think uh, how we're going to respond in other ways in ministry. Because we don't want people to go and think, well, I heard God, but I didn't respond. But we don't want to single you out, embarrass you, or make you feel that everyone's going to be saying, oh, they've got a really big problem. wonder what it is, and everyone's gossiping. For the grace of God sets you free.